You're listening to the I Love You Keep Going podcast with George Haas. For more information, please visit our website at www.metagroup.org. That's www.metagroup.org. So welcome, everybody. This is I Love You Keep Going. It is uh, May 5th, 2022 at 7.36 p.m. Pacific Daylight Time. And we've spent the last uh, weeks talking about advanced mentalizing, so I thought it was only fair that we flip it and uh, talk about basic mentalizing skills. Uh, And um, this set of six, uh, which is awareness of the state of mind of self and other. Uh, If you look at the Satipatthana Sutta in the refrain, uh, it says mindfulness of inside, mindfulness of outside, mindfulness of inside and outside. So that's what we're really talking about here, awareness of your own state of mind uh, and the awareness of another state of mind. Um, Then the second one is monitoring the accuracy of a state of mind. Uh, The Pali word for that is tajapanati, which means constantly comparing uh, the, the ultimate reality experience to the conceptual reality that you create. Uh, Taja means uh, constantly compare and Panati means conceptual reality. So the constant, I really think of it almost as a rocking back and forth. This is what I'm sensing. This is what I've made. This is what I'm sensing. This is what I've made. This is what I'm sensing. This is what I've made. So that you can begin uh, to reveal in that motion back and forth, whether there's a mind state or a view that's inhabiting the transition from ultimate Uh, sensing experience into what you create. Uh, The Buddha talked about this in terms of the five hindrances, uh, lust or craving, aversion, uh, sloth and torpor, restlessness and agitation, and skeptical doubt. When we begin our meditation practice, the first piece of the development of, uh, of the practice is to uh, in the at least in the Theravada uh, path, a commitment to an ethical stance in life. So that's the opening to the path. You you uh, commit to trainings that will allow you to engage uh, in the world uh, and with yourself in an ethical way. And then uh, the the ethics that the Buddha was talking about is defined of uh as the precepts uh in the vinyana the the monks have a certain number of precepts the nuns have a certain number of precepts and then uh, uh householders have uh, essentially the five basic precepts and then in, in uh Myanmar when we were on retreat there was a set of eight uh precepts for householders on retreat which added a few things uh, so, um, I like the way that Technak Han uh, uh, language is this, and I'm paraphrasing, which is uh, undertake the training to refrain from uh, killing. Um, and uh, uh, he widens that beyond the traditional uh, Theravada Buddhist view. In the uh, traditional Theravada, traditional Theravada Buddhist views, only human beings are sentient. So when it says to refrain from killing sentient beings, 
uh, he's only re uh, referring to that. Whereas if you extend that to what we now know through uh, our science view, there's a lot of sentience uh, throughout different uh, species in the world. Uh, the second is to, uh, um, you know, I always mix this up. Is it speech or stealing? Let's go with stealing. <laughs> the, uh, <laughs> to refrain from taking what is not freely offered to you. So the practice of uh, abstaining from taking what is not freely offered to you. So that includes any kind of coercion that you might be able to use or manipulation that you might be able to use to get what you want and only take the things that are explicitly and clearly offered to you. Um, the third is to, to refrain uh, from uh, the engage, uh, engagement of the expression of your sexuality in a way that would be harming to you or others. Uh, we uh, would have to include uh, prostitution in this or uh, pornography, uh, I think, in the way that he frames it. Um, the fourth is uh, to refrain from harm that can be caused by harsh speech. Uh, and then the fifth is uh, to refrain from uh, intoxicating yourself. And uh, he includes in this media and uh, all forms of uh, uh, the intake of information. And then uh, in uh, the uh, eight uh, or nine, to refrain from uh, wearing perfumes uh, or makeup, <clears throat> uh, to refrain from dancing, to refrain from sleeping on uh, thick mattresses, and uh, <laughs> uh, to practice uh, metta in every breath. That would be the complete set that we uh, commit to when we're on retreat. Then when we enter into uh, the path, the first thing that we need to begin to develop is concentration. Uh, access concentration is to being able to place your attention on an object and sustain awareness of it without interruption. And the reason it's called access concentration is that you can access jhana or you can access vipassana or insight practice from that level of concentration. And that if you don't uh, spend the time to develop that level of concentration, then you don't uh, aren't necessarily able to get the fruits from the practice that you do, and it can lead to the delusion that the practice is actually not that helpful. And I think that one of the things that happens early on to people who are meditating is that they don't really concentrate well enough to do some of the techniques that are offered to them. And because they're not actually able to do them, uh, you know, most of the uh, their experience of meditation is not being able to do the technique very well and not getting much out of it. So it is useful to consider doing uh, the preliminary practices. We're, we, of course, uh, in the West, particularly in America, uh, I, I think vastly overestimate our 
capacities and think that why should I, I who am so special, need to do preliminary practices? And so we skip them and, and go on to the next part. Um, but then we don't get the fruits of the practice and it, and it leads us to move from practice to practice to practice, uh, continuously seeking for the thing that we want, uh, even though the reason why we're not finding it is because we're not actually able to engage in the practice at a level that would produce uh, the result that we're looking for. <clears throat> um, some of us, you know, uh, through the different experiences of education that we've had, or through sports practices or something like that do develop a level of concentration, but uh, many of us don't. And so uh, we begin that. Now in the West, that tradition of preliminary practice has not been uh, embraced. And I think that that's largely because in the initial uh, instruction of meditation going back uh, to the late 50s and 60s, uh, it was largely done on retreat. And so you don't necessarily need to spend householder time doing preliminary practices when you're on retreat, because if you're sitting for long periods of time over an extended uh, period of time, the concentration naturally develops uh, from doing that. But if you're largely a householder practice and you don't go on retreat, then I think it is imperative that you do some uh, preliminary practices, which would I which I would suggest is uh, concentration. We uh, at Metagroup in the way that we uh, tend to uh, teach uh, beginning meditation is to start with a simple breath counting strategy and then to go into uh, a, a metta practice, but as uh, oriented toward a concentration practice rather than as a, uh, as a practice uh, intended to produce positive states. So we use wet and dry for that. A dry Vipassana practice would be a practice where concentration is not intentionally cultivated first. A wet Vipassana practice would be where concentration is intentionally developed first. And then once you have access concentration, you move into Vipassana and it's the opposite in metta. A dry uh, metta practice is a concentration oriented and a wet Meta uh, processes where you're cultivating uh, positive states, but not uh, cultivating necessarily concentration. When you do a dry metta practice or a dry uh, loving kindness practice, the blissfulness comes from the a byproduct of the high concentration states and can be intensely blissful, which uh, comes from any or can come from any of the jhanic states. Uh, you have metta jhana and also vipassana jhana. We tend to teach metta vipassana, so there are these integrated heart practices and insight practices. So in the beginning of the development of your metta practice, you're often using vipassana strategies to set up the, the technique and then once you've made the discoveries that you need to using insight practices, you abandon the insight practices and abide in the loving kindness practices. So mainly what we're trying to identify in the uh, metta jhana practice is the mind state of loving kindness, and then to make that the object of concentration. So it's a one-pointed uh, 
concentration practice on a mind state. Uh, because a lot of the work that we do at Metagroup is uh, focused on attachment and attachment repair, really developing capacity to track mind states is an important uh, uh, skill that you need to have in order to maintain secure functioning. And so we'd like to start at the very beginning of practice with that. And then <clears throat> when we come to the experience of this early basic metacognitive skill awareness of the state of mind of self and others if you're not able to track your own mind state you're not going to be able to track the mind state of someone else and you may not even be able to tell the difference between your own mind state and somebody else's mind state so the preliminary practices that lead to this basic level of metacognitive skill is actually the uh, developing the concentration to be able to be aware of your own mindset and also somebody else's mindset and to differentiate them. And then the second one, of course, is the monitoring of the accuracy of it. Did you generate a version of conceptual reality that matches to what's actually coming in, or has that been distorted by a mind state and you're able to track that. Um, if you had sensitive enough attuned caregivers, and uh, then you would already be able to do this. It's only when you don't have that early training that it, it could be an issue. And so when we look at that early experience of the infant in the dyadic relationship with their caregiver, the spontaneous, uh, uninhibited expression of the child hopefully is met by an attentive caregiver who attunes, who empathetically connects, uh, is able to understand what that expression means, and then mirror it back. That's, uh, this is the development of that uh, experience of understanding who we are in the reflection of someone else. If we don't have the reflection of somebody else uh, to compare to our own internal experience, we don't develop that capacity of uh, understanding uh, other people's expression and how that reflects what our experience is. Um, if that's always the condition that you experienced as a child, then you've always been able to do it and it's one of those automatic gatherings of information that you do and then you become sensitive to your expression and then the experience that other people have of your expression and whether it matches what you thought should should happen which opens up to the third basic metacognitive skill which is the awareness of one's own influence on another state of behavior and vice versa so when you're mentalizing at that level, you understand what your experience is, and that's been defined in reflection to your early experiences with a caregiver. So you'll notice in people with secure functioning that they experience themselves as capable and competent, and they experience other people as receptive to their expressions. If there's enough delight that comes back at them from their caregivers in that early dyadic experience, 
their expectation actually is that those spontaneous, authentic expressions will met, be met by delight in the other person. Um, and then also uh, that back and forth, uh, a child expresses anger, they can experience the effect that that anger has in the expression of the caregiver and then how the caregiver responds to that. And if that care is consistently positive, then there's no problem with the expression of anger because your expectation is that it won't affect the basis of the relationship or the, the, the basis of delight that the, the caregiver has in you. Have you you've seen, um, I suppose, a mother or father respond to a very fussy child with a lightheartedness and a sense of delight. And you've probably also seen uh, a, a caregiver that's overwhelmed by that experience and reacts harshly to the, uh, the child. And each of those reflections uh, we use to create the experience of ourselves uh, and also the way that we uh, anticipate or create the working model of other people. That making sense so far. So when we're talking about meditation uh, and uh, as an old student of Shinzen's, I really like to see her field technique for that because it's dividing up the experience of um, sensory experience into these easily trackable domains of sensing experience. And so you have uh, the, the uh, perception of the world, and then when you uh, uh, add the focus in, focus out strategies, you begin to develop the sensitivity to self and other, other being the focus out space and self being the focus in space. Um, <clears throat> when you um, then add other people as objects of meditation and you're engaged in the experience of them, you begin to track the empathetic experience. So we often talk about four basic kinds of emotional experience that you need to be able to track. And when you use these simple Vipassana techniques to divide up experience, you can develop a really uh, stark sensory clarity around these four basic kinds of emotional experience. The first is the emotional response that happens to the uh, experience of the present moment. So you have the capacity to sense something, the object that can be sensed when there's contact, consciousness of that sensing experience arises. It's then compare, it's then uh, um, evaluated for processing speed, I like to call it Veda is the poly word, pleasant, unpleasant or neutral. I think uh, urgent attention doesn't really matter whether we get to it and pleasant if there's time is a better way to think about that. And then it's compared to the perceptual database. And if there's an entry in the perceptual database that's close enough to the undifferentiated sensing experience, then conceptual the process of conceptual reality happens and the undifferentiated sensing experience becomes conceptual reality based on what it means to you, not necessarily based on what's happening. Because we're referencing uh, the perceptual database to create an understanding of what the sensing experience is. Uh, it really isn't about 
what's happening as much as it is, as it is about what it means to us. Now, there is always the possibility that it's a unique or novel situation that you're in, and then the imagination kicks in and creates a meaning that's associated with the sensing experience, and that becomes the reality. But when you begin to explore this deeply, what you'll see is that you can really create almost anything, and it will take on the appearance of solid and real uh, and if you're not in this constant movement back and forth to compare what you've made with what you uh, created or what you've sensed, then you can slip out of uh, mentalizing and think that the experience that you're having is actually what's happening and that it's a universal experience and that everybody's happening, having it. This was non-mentalizing mode, which we would call psychic equivalence, where you think your experience is an accurate representation of what's actually happening and not a representation of what's happening in that moment means to you. Um, this, uh, that constant movement back and forth, that understanding is I am creating reality based on what it means to me in this present moment, and I'm not even obligated to other moments that I've had in creating this, really. Uh, and that you're also doing that opens up this uh, investigation of actively mentalizing what the other person's state is. If you're just relying on the fact that everyone has the same experience as you, there's no investigation at all of what the other person's experience might be, so you're not engaged in that basic level of um, awareness of the state of your own mind and somebody else's. And then in exploring whether there's a mind state present or not, uh, and a distortion present or not, uh, you can evaluate whether you're seeing things clearly and you can also begin to sense in the other person whether they're seeing it clearly, whether they're in a quantum state or they're actually in a view that's distorting. And so that when you engage in the communication, you can express this. Uh, uh, the better you know people and the more you negotiate these agreements, the easier it is to have these kinds of dialogues. Now, one of the things about consciousness uh, is that it's delayed by about a half a second. So that most of the time, the entire process that I've just described has already happened as it enters into consciousness. It's unusual to see the process of the mind forming conceptual reality. Most of the time it just enters completely formed. And so we're engaged often in this reverse engineering. This is what I've made. What did I make it out of? Rather than this is what I'm sensing. This is what I make. This is what I've made. What did I make it out of? This is what I've made. What did I make it out of? So that you can begin to uh, have a dynamic relationship to that. Um, the better you are at doing that, of course, the then you move into the next level of mentalizing, which is becoming aware of one's state of mind in such a way that it has a regulatory effect on that stage. So we develop uh, through experience strategies for regulating different states of mind or changing different states of mind. When you move into the metta practice, 
um, I think I didn't list the four types of uh, um, emotional states. Let me do that now. So I'll reference them soon. The first one is the reaction to the emotional reaction to the present moment plays out on the surface of the body. The second is the emotion that's generated by thinking. So you think a thought and part of that thought is the, the feel in aspect, the emotional aspect. So you have auditory, visual and uh, emotion that creates a really substantial conceptual reality experience. The third is the empathetic experience of someone else, which you uh, develop in response to them. So when you're mentalizing and you're aware of their state as separate than yours, then you begin to open to the empathetic experience of what they feel like. And you can hold your own emotional experiences separate from that and keep them distinct. And then the fourth one is the somaticized emotional experience. So old holdings of emotionally overwhelming experience that are in the body. Usually you notice them as energy centers that then uh, release emotion. What we begin to do, and we, we do also learn this in the dyadic relationship with our caregivers very young, uh, is the, uh, the way that one can regulate the experience of one's state of mind. Uh, usually this is, uh, 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 we learn through observation of how the caregiver responds to us to comfort and soothe us if they do that. Uh, we may be asking for comfort, we may be asking for soothing, and they may not actually provide uh, uh, comfort and soothing, but they, they do provide some way of regulating it. So uh, I see you're sad here, let me give you some affection, let me reassure you that it's going to be okay, or uh, wipe that sad expression off your face, or I'll give you something to be sad about. Another strategy for regulating, but that really leads to the suppression, the conscious suppression and, and expression of emotion, rather than uh, a, a, a comfort and soothing. But it does lead to the development of a self-regulation strategy. So we become aware that uh, one state of mind in such a way that it has a regulatory effect. So this is also the beginning of the self-generated emotion where we think a thought in response to something that's distressing in the present moment in a way of, uh, in an attempt to comfort and soothe ourselves. We want to uh, uh, use meditation as a way of evaluating how we do that. So we begin to learn to monitor auditory thinking visual thinking and the emotion that uh, is a part of that constellation of uh, um, thought, and then pay attention to whether we use repetitive thought patterns as a way of regulating our experience. What you'll notice is that most adults use repetitive thoughts as a way of regulating their emotional experience, and that children observe adults using uh, repetitive thought processes and to develop a version of that themselves. So we learn from our caregivers the, the strategies that our family systems use to regulate emotional experience. <laughs> um, through observation, but also from being uh, 
soothed by our caregivers? What is it that they say to us that's soothing <coughs> or has a regulatory effect? So what we do is we anchor our attention in auditory or visual thinking, depending on which is our primary thought process. And then we track one of our thoughts from repeating thoughts. And then we monitor the repeating thoughts until we learn the content of them. And then we evaluate whether they're beneficial thought processes or afflictive thought processes. We suppress the afflictive thought processes and develop uh, beneficial thought processes to regulate. <coughs> I'm, my voice is failing, but I'll uh, go on for a few more minutes and then we can meditate. Uh, once we develop uh, beneficial thought processes, then uh, the we can move into a place of what we would call self-mastery in terms of emotional regulation, that we develop these emotional regulation strategies and we develop enough of them that are beneficial that uh, we have some, uh, some uh, opportunity of regulation in most situations that we're facing. So that really fosters our capacity to explore because we can uh, explore individually uh, and take risks and regulate uh, and go deeper into the exploration, but it also understand that uh, we are collaborative, uh, we're meant to live in social groups, and so it's also being able to create a supportive social network that will be able to help you regulate if you get so dysregulated that your capacity to regulate yourself is not uh, of working in all situations. So in that development, we all start off as auto-regulators. This is from the attachment view. And that it's a caregiver comes reliably enough that we, be, we reorient to externally regulating. And if that caregiver comes reliably enough, we'll move into a collaborative relationship with them where we really rely on them to regulate, it, regulate us so that we're willing then to take these big risks in our exploration of life, because we know if we need somebody, they'll be there uh, to regulate us. Now, in a secure person who had that uh, dyadic experience, their expectation is that they will be able to find those people and have them around them. So they're much freer in, in being able to explore than people who have the view that there aren't people like that around. And so I have to, I have to monitor how much dysregulation I allow by uh, modifying or curtailing my exploration so I don't get so dysregulated that I don't have somebody who will help me. And if your expectation is that they're not plentiful and, and they're not available, you really do begin to limit your exploration. Um, the fifth then is the awareness of one's own and another's action plans or goal directedness that you learn that you have your own agenda, that really your, your brain is developed enough to do that at about 18 months, and then you seek your own autonomy. It's also about the time that you really can move around. 
um, on your own. And uh, you begin, uh, if you're collaborative, to collaborate with other people's agendas. And if you don't develop that capacity for collaboration, you're in conflict with other people's agendas for themselves uh, or uh, not uh, being sufficiently supportive of your own agenda. But an example of that would be the child says, I'm hungry, and the, the, the caregiver says, okay, let me make you something to eat. And then the child sees that the caregiver needs to make them something to eat, and so they settle, waiting for the, the caregiver to make something to eat for them without constantly hectoring them that they're hungry because they can see that there's a process involved and they can collaborate with that or the caregiver can say we're not eating now we're eating in an, in an hour which a child won't understand because they don't understand time but i'm going to give you a snack now and then you're going to let me finish what i need to do and then we'll have dinner and if that's consistent enough that the child has the expectation at the end of that the dinner will be there then they can settle into uh, uh, playing and exploring while waiting for dinner in a way that if they're uncertain about it, that they, they would be too anxious to be able to do it. <clears throat> and then the sixth one is meaning making. Meaning making is really where you understand that some activities are satisfying for you and some activities are not satisfying for you and being able to understand in activities whether that uh, quality of satisfaction is present or not. Uh, and then understanding why uh, it has resonance for you, why it's meaningful to you. And then you can then organize your agenda in a way that you're pursuing things that are more meaningful. That all making sense in that basic set. So <clears throat> one of the things I think that's useful about using these kinds of maps to dis discuss this is that you can begin to do an evaluation of where your own mentalizing capacities are, and then you can begin to focus in on the things that you need to uh, develop in order to increase your capacity for mentalizing. And so, uh, <clears throat> what I would like to do is just do some basic see, hear, feel, and then some uh, focus in, focus out. So that the, that really basic uh, Vipassana skill at developing mentalizing uh, uh, is uh, uh, something that you can practice. We divide the sensory experience into visual experience, auditory experience, and the felt sense of the body, which includes emotion. Uh, and then they come together, of course, to form conceptual reality. So we're pulling these individual threads of data and then combining the threads in order to create conceptual reality. The computer monitor metaphor, I think, is quite helpful. If you look at your computer screen, you can see things that you've made into meaning, right? People and you're listening to an auditory stream, which is language, which you're parsing into words and meaning. Um, but if you zoomed really tightly in on the, the, the video screen that you're looking at, it would be diodes of red, green, and blue. There would be no meaning beyond that in each of the individual uh, red, green, and blue. They're either on or they're off, uh, or bright or less bright. Is that making sense? 
So that process of meaning making takes, we take all of that data in and we form conceptual reality and we assign a meaning to it that is not intrinsically there in the individual data stream. So what we want to do is move beyond the conceptual reality into the sensing experience, the streams of data that, that we then use to uh, formulate conceptual reality. So in this process of dividing things into see, hear, feel, we're not looking at the content, merely whether the sense gate itself is active or not. So is it on, is it off? Then we'll divide into this, the six, uh, we'll divide visual experience into external sight space, internal visual thinking. Internal visual thinking tends to be a mental screen centered at the eyes where you see imagery associated with thinking, but not everybody's a strong visual thinker, so you may or may not have much awareness of that. There are other aspects of that, but that's the primary one. In auditory experience, it's external sight space, sound space, and internal auditory thinking. So for most people, that's inside the head between the ears, at the opening of the ears. Uh, you have clear talk there, so words, so you can understand the meaning of it. And some people have an awareness of a vibratory energy, uh, which is also there. And then in the body, uh, initially it's all sensations in the body, and then we divide emotional sensations, which is feel in from all of the other sensations in the body, which is feel out. And then um, I think what we'll do is begin with a few minutes of concentration practice so that we can settle in. So how did that go? I can share. Okay. Yeah, I just have to say that I felt like uh, I was totally lost and maybe this is an advanced group and I didn't get the instructions because I didn't, I really didn't know what to do with the instructions. So I, Instead, I said, I will, I, I'm watching my mind and trying different things out for a person who doesn't know what to do or what to feel, or what to sense. Like maybe this is far above me and it just went over my head, yeah. What did you do? So what I did is I try, I, well, first of all, I would just get distracted into, you know, mind wandering. Then I, then I'd say, well, I better just kind of focus on something so I don't get so frustrated. And then I went into, um, this is sort of like somebody asking you to draw an apple and you're blind and you've never felt one. And no one's ever told you what an apple is like. And then I'm like, no, no, this is like somebody giving instructions on ice skating and all this stuff. And they're, you, they've never given you ice skates, so you don't know the experience. But uh, you know, and then I went from an apple to another object, and I'm like, wow, when you don't know what you're supposed to do or feel or experience, what do you do with your mind? And so, yeah, did you notice the apple and visual experience, auditory experience, or the felt sense of the body? So, when I said, well. The apple, what if I was blind and somebody asked me to draw an apple? 
and I never felt one. Nobody described it to me. I'd be so, like, but how did you know that? How did I know to draw the question? Was that an auditory thought, a visual thought, or a felt sense in the body? How would I determine the difference? That was the problem. I couldn't figure out what, what each one was. So in reflecting back on it, you described it to us as an auditory thought. But if I were a blind person and had never seen an apple, so th those were words. Is that how you knew that you were thinking that? Yeah, I guess so. Okay. And where did you hear those words? I guess in my head. Where else do you hear them? Exactly. But where in your head? In my mind. So with the instructions, uh, the explanation was auditory thinking space, which is inside the head or at the ears. Did you notice that? Oh, I didn't catch that. Inside the head or in the ears? At the opening of the ears is typically where you hear auditory thought. Well, I don't know, but I'm sort of leaning towards saying internal in the mind. Okay. And then with internal visual thinking, it's typically a mental screen that's centered at the eyes. So when you close your eyes, do you ever see visual imagery? I think that's what happens. I think that's my usual thing. And is it, where's that located? Well, I don't, I didn't know there was a location for these things, but I guess it would be in the front of the head. Right. And then uh, where do you feel emotion? Uh, in the throat or the core of the body. So along the surface of the body and throat? Yeah, in the, mostly in the front or sometimes, yeah, I guess mostly in the front. So now what we've described is uh, internal visual thinking, internal auditory thinking, and uh, uh, the felt, the, the emotion in the body, that's the focus in space. And then the focus out space is where do you see visual image when the eyes are open? Oh, was the instruction to open the eyes for that part? No, but I'm just asking you. Okay. I'm trying to walk you through the spaces that you're monitoring. Okay, so what's the question? If your eyes are open, where do you see the visual space? Here and here and here. So and here. out, out in front. As far as I can see, out. With, I mean, I can't see my nose. Yeah, as far as I can see, out. And then when you hear the external soundscape of the world, where do you hear it? I guess through the ears. And then when you feel the body, where do you feel the body? Through the core front of the body. Or it could, so be then, else, could be the foot or the toe or what. So the feel out part is different than the feel in part. Oh, so I just described feel in? You, you described the contrast between feel in and feel out. What's, what did I say was feel in? 
the the front of the body, the core of the body, and the throat. Okay, that's where you that? feel emotion, and then feel out spaces that or other spaces like you could feel your foot. You said. Feel out is yeah. feeling. The, the, wouldn't feel the, out be like touching something out of yourself? Well, no, uh, it's an arbitrary designation, but it's the corporalness, the physicalness of the body. So you've you've actually been able to define all of the six bases that we were tracking, and here what you just want to do is let your attention to be drawn to whatever sensing experience is happening, and then know that it's one of those six spaces. And try and de define it or recognize it. Yeah, you just have to recognize that it's active. You don't have to do anything else about it. Oh. All right. And I'll do it <laughs> next time. Good. Yeah, I, I mean, it just goes over my head and I'm like, I, I'm not sure, like I'm in so kindergarten. I'm not You're sure in the level about... two class, and all of the basics are in that 84 meditations that you have. So if you go yeah, through those, wow. you'll get the, the basic instruction. Okay. That's the development of sensory clarity that we need. So it does develop over time. Yeah. You don't know what the heck's going on in the beginning. Right. I call that equanimity with confusion. Okay. Yeah. The most important thing to me in that whole process was that I was able to not get too frustrated and angry. Good. I, I had a little bit of it, but then I thought, well, I'll just do whatever, you know, an apple fear, you know, like normally I would get really frustrated. Like, I don't understand the instructions. Why am I here? All right. I, I managed to just say, oh, well, whatever. Yeah. Good. Yeah. Equanimity. Yeah. Otherwise known as oh well, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I guess so. Oh well, whatever. Good. It is a way. It is a way to relax when you could be frustrated. So. Um. Someone else. Joan? I noticed that I was challenged in just being with a feeling and not assigning an emotion. Uh, I realized that that apparently is a pattern. I feel a feeling and then I assign or think of, of what does that mean? Right. Good. Um. So thank you all for coming and practicing. Um, was that good enough, Joan, or did you have more? Fine, thank you. Okay. Um, we're gonna, we have posted the new level one and the new level two on the website, if you wanna take a look at that. And uh, I think it's, um, uh, end of June into July. I'm not sure. Um, and then we have our retreat coming up um, in October. And uh, the new thing that's on the horizon is that we're trying to put together a trip to Thailand in January and February. It's a kind of ecotourism trip.
uh, we'll go to Chiang Mai and then we'll we'll hike through the mountains to the monastery. <laughs> uh, don't worry, uh, I'm turning 70 this year. The idea of two days of hiking through the mountains of Thailand uh, made me think we need to have cars on the, on, available. <laughs> so we'll have cars available if you need to. Then we'll go and do a course uh, at a high forest monastery. <coughs> And then take a couple of more days to do some more uh, travel around Thailand and come back. It's an 18-day trip altogether. Um, so that uh, is the thing that we're trying to figure out. But all of that eventually will end up on the website. Um, I offer the teaching freely, but I do hope that you'll make a donation. There's a link to do that on the website. Any amount is helpful. It helps support me and also the work medic group is doing. Uh, thank, thank you for coming and we'll see you next time. Bye now.